and welcome to another Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. As you may have come to expect by now, we're going to start off today's content with a review of a product that may be of interest to you, especially if you like to play spellcasters. Magic is a powerful word. It evokes feelings of wonder and mystery and things beyond mortal human understanding. Almost by definition, magic is something unusual, set apart from the everyday and the normal. It is something special, something indefinable, something that eludes definition and classification. Unless, of course, you're talking about a tabletop role-playing game. In that case, there are clearly defined rules about what magic can and can't do. There are spells per day and spells known and prohibited schools and maximum ranges and unwritten rules about what sorts of things magic simply isn't allowed to do. And that's where the book Magic by Alderock Entertainment Group comes in. You might recognize the publisher better as AEG, which is the common abbreviation for their company name. And the book was written by a team of no less than seven writers, one of which is Mike Merles, a name you may recognize both from his previous work in the industry and as someone involved in the upcoming fifth edition of D&D. But enough about the book's pedigree. Let's talk about what it's about. Here's an excerpt from the book's introduction. Magic can't afford to be mysterious, weird, and unpredictable in a game. It needs rules to govern it, so players and DMs can make use of it. If nobody knows what a mage's fireball does, it's hard to resolve it during a game. But that doesn't mean magic can't be mysterious. With a few tweaks here and a few changes there, and a new game mechanic or two, we can build an almost infinite variety of new types of magic. Madness mages bend reality with the sheer force of their will. Arcane monks dish out kung fu with a nice frosting of magic. Shadow mages call to the darkness and bend it to their will. Within this book, you'll find over a dozen new types of spellcasters. They all work on the foundation of the same magic system, but with just enough changes to make them noticeably different. That's certainly an ambitious sentiment, and it's clear looking at the table of contents that the authors intend to deliver. The book is divided into 15 chapters. The first 14 are each devoted to a new style of magic, such as chronomancy, elementalism, number magic, rune magic, etc. The final chapter, labeled Arcana, goes into detail on a number of larger, more sweeping optional rule systems, such as spell points or freeform casting. I don't know about you, but the potential for 14 new styles of magic has me pretty excited, so I'm ready to jump right in and take a look at what we get. The first chapter is Chronomancy, and not surprisingly, it has to do with time magic. In a format that will become quite familiar by the time we finish with the book, the chapter begins with about half a page of flavorful text written in the first person from the point of view of a practitioner of that chapter's magic in the format of a rather one-sided conversation about their approach to the arcane. While these things are subjective, and your experience may differ from mine, I find these flavor sections to be more of a detractor than a bonus, and the writing style is awkward, grating, and generally poorly done. Uh, I've forced myself to read through the first two or three of these, but to be perfectly honest, after the first few chapters I started skimming them. Uh, in this in particular case, it takes the form of a rather confused chronomancer trying to talk his way out of being arrested by a town guard. Um, after this is a, is a section labeled Background, which is where the author explains the basic concept of what sets chronomancy, or whatever type of magic a given chapter is about, apart from other kinds of magic. This is all fluff information and basically serves to build up that in particular kind of magic and get you excited about it and want to use it in your game. In some cases, it also gives you a relatively clear preview of what the class will look like mechanically, though in others this becomes a bit misleading, but we'll get to that later. In a few cases, like with Chronomancy, this section also branches out into cosmological concepts as well. In this case, it describes what it refers to as the temporal prime, a sort of plane where a chronomancer can travel through or adjust time, which is envisioned here as a web of interconnected strands. Uh, it also talks about the plane's guardians, which aren't so much creatures as they are a force of nature, which is just intelligent enough to actively target and attempt to kill those who meddle too much with time and causality. 
The next section is entitled In Your Campaign, and it talks about what kind of effect practitioners of a certain class can have on your game, generally from the perspective of how they can enhance it, though in this in particular case it focuses on reassuring DMs that steps have been taken to limit a chronomancer's ability to mess with the time stream, and that they shouldn't need to fear overly much that their PC should be able to go back in time and kill the main villain before he was ever born. Uh, of course, they also recommend a general policy that anything that would affect sweeping change be fixed by having time be elastic, so that killing the evil king would simply cause him to be replaced by his evil brother, uh, with events unfolding largely as they would have before. And this ultimately proves a great amount of the bulk of their, reach, uh, of, of their protection against that sort of effect by PCs. Uh, finally, we reach the Chronomancer, a new base class designed to serve as the way for characters to gain access to the character's type, to that chapter's type of magic. Uh, at a first glance, the Chronomancer looks a lot like a wizard, and that's because there's not a whole lot of differences between the two classes. They get the same number of spells per day and cast spells in an identical fashion. They have one half base attack bonus, and their only good save is will. Their proficiency and skills are the same. You get the idea. Uh, here's where things start to differ. Instead of the wizard class features, some bonus feats, a familiar, etc. He gains a class feature called Probability Manipulation, which allows him to choose to re-roll a skill check, attack roll, or saving throw after rolling it, but before determining whether or not it was a success. He can do this once per day at first, but gains a few more uses as he increases in level. The only other difference between the Chronomancer and a Wizard is something called Temporal Scholar, which is a class feature that only allows a Chronomancer to gain access to new Chronomancy spells presented in this chapter. Even though the Chronomancer uses the Sorcerer Wizard spell list, other spellcasters can't use these spells, even on scrolls with Use Magic Device, uh, even on scrolls or, or other things with Use Magic Device, or under any other circumstances ever. A curious restriction, which would leave one to believe that these spells really must be something. Unfortunately, they're not. You see, there are a total of nine new Chronomancy spells introduced in the book, one of each spell level. What's worse, most of these spells don't really feel all that special, nor do they seem like they really deserve to be set apart from the other classes in such an ironclad way. For example, let's take a look at Combat Precognition, a, no, sorry, the first level Chronomancy spell. It lasts for an hour per level, and it grants a plus one insight bonus to AC, and a plus one bonus on attack rolls and saving throw DCs of spells that allow a reflex save. And that's it. To give you a quick tour, you can make your opponent lose a few rounds worth of actions, you can spend a standard action to force someone to automatically be hit with an attack, or far more powerfully, especially in conjunction with Quicken Spell, to automatically fail a saving throw. Uh, you can rapidly age someone, which mechanically imposes a minus four penalty to any three ability scores you choose. You can effectively strip a target of some levels temporarily, or else a piece of equipment, or you can take two rounds for every one you would normally get. Uh, now, admittedly, some of those are very powerful effects, uh, especially the ability to automatically make someone fail a saving throw, or the ability to just get double the number of actions that other people get for a, a period of time. Um, but if they're being separated for power reasons, they probably shouldn't be given to the Chronomancer at all, uh, let alone anybody else. And there's really nothing, no effect in any of those that really stands out as something that you couldn't let your sorcerer or wizard do, um, especially if they had to use use magic device and a scroll to, to get it. Uh, there are really only two spells here that stand out at all, and those are time travel and greater time travel, which allow you to travel backwards in time in a manner vaguely similar to plane shift. Unfortunately, the spell can only allow you to go backwards, 
and it doesn't include a way to return to the future, which means that, as written, we'll simply strand you in the past and leave you unable to return, which, I suppose, is an effective way of keeping any changes you make in the distant past from being a big issue, although if used to travel back to relatively recent events could still seriously impact a campaign, but then I guess that's what the Guardians are for. Speaking of the Guardians, they manifest directly through the various chronomancy spells. You see, most of these spells contain a clause at the end which says that casting them attracts the attention of the Guardians and that the caster must therefore succeed on a fortitude save or suffer some amount of damage. As a general rule, this damage is pathetically minor, ranging from a single point of damage up to a whopping 2 die 8. A cool concept, but with poor execution, it serves more as a nuisance than anything else. This, in particular, chapter wraps up with two magic items, an outfit that changes to match the current fashions of any time you're in, and a quote-unquote compass that functions as a super-accurate time-traveler watch, telling you exactly what time you're in. Finally, there's a sidebar that talks about paradoxes, admits that there are as many theories of time travel as there are stars in the sky, and essentially tells you to do whatever you think will be best for the game. The next chapter, Elementalism, is devoted to mages who form a bond with the basic elements. The background section talks about elementalists as using a rudimentary form of magic, being more flexible in that the elementalists need only control her chosen type of element, and yet more limited because complicated effects like, for example, Summon Monster 1 is far beyond the abilities of raw elements to perform. After all of this talk about how the elementalist is more of a raw, primal kind of caster than other kinds, the reader may be surprised to find that the elementalist uses intelligence as her primary spellcasting ability score and functions like a wizard using a spell book and casting any spells that she likes from the sorcerer wizard spell list. Much like the chronomancer, the elementalist is a wizard with a few alternate class features. Instead of the normal bonus feats, she chooses an element, air, earth, fire, or water. Uh, she gets one spell per level of that element, which she learns for free and can, can prepare sort of like a domain spell, uh, plus a handful of elemental-themed benefits like reducing fall damage for air or fire resistance for fire, etc. Additionally, instead of a normal familiar, they receive an elemental familiar, which is a small elemental of their chosen element that grows as they level up, eventually becoming a full elder elemental. Uh, after this, there are exactly two elemental-themed feats, one of which will allow you to gain a bonus to attack and damage against creatures of a specified element, the other of which grants energy resistance 2 to a specific energy type. After that is the Elemental Adept, a prestige class that doesn't really have that much to do with elementalism mechanically, although it is a great source of natural armor for anyone willing to call himself an Earth Mage, or of bonuses to attack or damage rolls for Fire or Water Mages, respectively. Uh, this is followed by a page of elemental-themed magic items, which I personally found uninspired, but which others may find more exciting. Who's to say? This brings us to the third chapter, Fetish Magic, which, in case you didn't know, refers to small ritualistic objects imbued with magical power, not with deviant sexual practices, which is an important distinction to make before you, before you go about uh, into the wrong kind of bar or laugh in the face of a powerful shaman and ask him if he plans to kill you with thigh-high leather boots or a nurse's outfit. In all seriousness, though, the premise for fetish magic is much more interesting and novel in a role-playing game supplement than, say, an elementalist, who we've seen prestige classes and base classes for in every splat book ever. Uh, and, despite the last two chapters being disappointments, I have hope for this one. After all, with 14 new kinds of magic to choose from, some of them have to be winners, right? Well, the Totemist class does do a better job of differentiating itself from the wizard, and not just because it's based on the sorcerer instead. 
Uh, totemists use small carvings, typically called a fetish or totem, instead of material components. They aren't quite the same as a focus, however. For one, there's a 10% chance per use that a fetish is destroyed. Further, uh, a few times per day he can call on his totem for extra power, which causes a single aspect of the spell, such as range, duration, damage, etc., uh, to increase by two, uh, as though he were two levels higher. Uh, although in order to do so, the totemist must succeed on a charisma check, or else lose the spell entirely. Basic charms cost five gold and take a day to make. Uh, their other major class feature is a bonus to bluff and intimidate that increases as they gain levels. One thing that does set the totemist apart is that it has its own spell list, which includes a blend of arcane and divine magic. Other than that, though, both the totemist and the chapter's prestige class, the Charm Master, really don't stand out as anything special, interesting, or worthy of note. That said, the chapter doesn't end here, and next there are a pair of, mag of item creation feats that allow one to craft charms and greater charms. These magic items can be called on with a successful die 20 roll and or diplomacy check to appease the spirit of the charm to increase the power of spells a totemist cast through them, much the same way as, a totem as the totemist class feature I described above, increasing a specific aspect of the spell as though it were two levels higher. Uh, greater charms can increase them as though the caster were four levels higher, so that's nice, I guess. Um, now, we don't really have time to go through the entire book with this level of detail, and even if we did, you probably wouldn't want to listen all the way through, as it's bound to get a bit repetitive. Besides, whether the review is positive or not, we wouldn't exactly be doing AEG any favors by spelling out the book's entire contents, and I can say from personal experience that it can be frustrating when a reviewer decides to go through every single aspect step-by-step, step, so there's no stone left unturned, and no reason for anyone to ever actually purchase the book and take a look at what's inside. There's a saying about that sort of thing, something about cows and milk. I don't really remember. Uh, so we're going to go into a little something called the lightning round. It's a little less in-depth, but it should tell you more or less what you need to know about the next few chapters of the book. So here we go. Chapter 4 is Flesh Magic. It doesn't have arcane spell, spell failure. It can't be affected by dispel magic or similar effects. It doesn't work on unnatural otherworldly creatures, and it works like a sorcerer, except with wisdom instead of charisma. There's a cool ability to make transmutation effects permanent, but the amount of time and XP involved in maintaining the effect generally makes it not worthwhile. There's a prestige class and several new spells as well, but nothing really worth mentioning. Chapter 5 is Forge Magic, and in theory it's about imbuing magic into crafted items, but in practice the Mage Smith class seems to mostly be about the apprentice-master relationship and is almost entirely flavor with no real benefits, uh, mechanical benefits. Uh, the associated Prestige class, which revolves around stealing souls and using them to empower magic item creation, uh, which heavily references the rules from the last chapter of the book, uh, gets a little bit confusing and doesn't really stand out that much. The class's actual abilities are a little underwhelming, uh, but it could be fun, especially if you're one of those people who just loves to, to do stuff with souls. And I'll admit I'm one of those people. So, uh, Chapter 6 is Key Magic and features a monk variant that also has spellcasting. Overall, the class is a lot like the Magus from Ultimate Magic, although since the book was written for 3.0, there are differences, and it's probably fairer to say that the Magus is like it than the other way around. Uh, there's also a prestige class for monks, which allows them to unlock their bloodline potential, such as draconic, angelic, etc. Why do monks have special bloodlines? Don't ask me. I have no idea. Chapter 7's Madness Magic is another type of magic that is immune to dispel magic and doesn't suffer arcane spell failure. It can't be used in conjunction with metamagic, none of which can I find any reason for, uh, mechanically speaking, or particularly fluff-wise either. Uh, madness Mages can sacrifice spell slots to enhance the power of another spell they cast, but this ability is just bad for a number of reasons and should never be used ever. 
Uh, you also need to take a number of drawbacks called Taints of Madness as you increase in level. Chapter 8's number magic has little to do with numbers and a surprising amount to do with evil twins. Overall, though, the main mechanic of the, cl the class has going for it is that you can select a specific target or type of target for your spell when you prepare it, and the spell becomes more effective against targets that meet the description, but less effective against creatures who don't. Uh, there's also a prestige class and some rules involving planar doubles, and much of the chapters devoted to the idea of alternate versions of characters which travel through dimensions, killing all the versions of themselves and becoming more powerful. Potentially a cool campaign idea, I guess, but the chapter is really all over the place. Still, if you're looking for uh, an actual class with, with interesting magic to salvage, this is probably going to be your best place, uh, because the, the specifying target mechanic is probably one of the better and more interesting ones in the book. Chapter 9 is Rune Magic, and I really have nothing to say about it. You can do some cool things by scribing runes onto objects, so if that's your thing, it might be good for you. Honestly, though, if I can't come up with anything worth mentioning about the entire chapter, it's probably not a good sign. Uh, I'm kind of wordy, in case you hadn't noticed, so usually I will be able to find something to say. The entire chapter really left me nonplussed. Chapter 10 focuses on shadow magic, which is less effective depending on the kind of light one is in, and which also imposes some rather severe drawbacks on the caster every few levels he gains in the class. Hefty, like, for example, uh, whenever you cast a spell, you phase out of existence and can't do anything for two die four rounds, or taking one die six points of subdual damage every round you're exposed to sunlight, for example. In short, you should never, ever take a level in this class ever under any circumstances ever. Chapter 11 is Technomancy. Yes, Technomancy. Gears and constructs and steam and the like. Uh, they receive artificial minions and are skilled at creating magic items. There are a few construct-centered spells and, while, uh, and a whole lot of templates and things for mechanical creatures of various sorts. Uh, if you want to have an army of robots, this is probably going to do fairly well for you. Chapter 12 is Thaumaturgy, and it is theoretically a blend of arcane and divine magic. It does a fairly good job of this, allowing you to add divine spells to your spell book, though it's not easy to do, and letting you replace non-costly material components with a divine focus, etc. Uh, for some reason, they chose to have familiars grant different bonuses than they normally do, and I have no clue why. Uh, this chapter also goes on at length about a lich named Spelsius, who was the original creator of the, the thaumaturgy style of magic. Um, so, there's that. Uh, chapter 13 is Theurgy, which is the style of magic set aside for religious spellcasters of an arcane bent. The Theurgist is a prestige class, which essentially grants an arcane spellcaster access to a pair of cleric domains, and eventually allows them to transform into an outsider. So if that sounds like your thing, there you go. Fourteenth type of magic is called Witchcraft, and according to the authors, the class exists primarily as a way to introduce the spell point and freeform magic rules from the next chapter without having to adjust an existing class. The resulting mix of rules is confusing and difficult to follow, and I can't necessarily say that I recommend the class, but regardless, it doesn't really matter that much because there's not a whole lot to the class that's not in the next chapter. Uh, speaking of which, this finally brings us to the big chapter, Chapter 15, Arcana. The first part of this chapter is devoted to a spell point system, which is more or less identical to the ones found in, for example, Unearthed Arcana. Uh, actually, it's decidedly less, uh, than the, less than identical, as it lacks things like additional spell points for high ability scores, but also adds additional restrictions, like causing a burnout to occur if one tries to cast the same spell too many times in a single day, preventing him from casting for the next, that in particular spell for the next two days. Uh, next up is Spontaneous Magic, a long and poorly laid out section that presents optional rules for casting spells more spontaneously, such as casting spells of a higher level than you can normally cast, but which you have access to in the form of a spellbook or scroll. 
or a spell that you know but don't have prepared, or turning a fireball into burning hands, for example. Uh, of course, this requires some difficult checks and has a decent chance of backfiring or just causing the spell to fail. In theory, these rules can also be used to cast a spell entirely from scratch, making up what it does as you go, but the guidelines for this, and for that matter, on the difference between casting a spell you know but don't have prepared and changing a spell you know into a different related spell, are hazy and vague, making these rules difficult, if not impossible, to use. After this is a section talking about designing your own spells for use in a more traditional way. This section is good at encouraging players and GMs uh, to want to go through this process, something that the information in the DMG, which merely says that it's possible, doesn't really do. Uh, it doesn't really give any guidelines for what's too powerful or other useful guidelines on unwritten for like unwritten rules that might elude those not used to spell making though. So if you already want to make spells, it will be of limited utility for you. Uh, next is a section on arcane dueling, which is basically pure fluff and almost certainly going to be useless to you, other than just getting you excited about the idea of arcane dueling. Of course, I've never seen a section on spell duels that didn't ultimately leave me disappointed in exactly the same way, so I guess that's just par for the course. Next, it moves on to magic items, starting with intelligent item personalities. These are, unfortunately, little more than a description of personality archetypes, like Alien or Avenger with suggested weapon, armor qualities for and other special abilities, and no real mechanical information or particularly enjoyable uh, personality descriptions or, or quirks. Uh, from there, it moves on to legendary magic items and magic item progression, rules that allow for magic items to level up alongside their wielders, becoming more powerful and unlocking secret potential. This section is kind of cool, and I like the idea, even if the execution didn't really stand out to me as particularly amazing or clever or different from other places where I've seen similar effects. Then it goes on to magic item templates, which are primarily flavorful but do contain some mechanical effects as well as price adjustment. Uh, overall, these feel more like magic item special abilities or collections thereof rather than something tied to the item being ancient or blessed or whatever other names they gave. Um, there are also rules for binding souls into magic items, including constructs, some new spell casting gear, a handful of feats, and prestige classes that are designed to work with spell points and or freeform magic, but which didn't fit anywhere else in the book, and a couple of magic items. And that's the book. Clocking in at 194 pages, it's certainly long, though any given chapter is going to have less than 20 pages, and as a result, it seems almost more like an anthology of unrelated products than it does a cohesive whole. Sadly, in case you hadn't picked it up, most of those shorter segments have little to recommend them, as they feel rushed and don't really have the time or space to introduce properly different magic systems, or really make any of those styles of magic stand out and do what they're supposed to do, be mysterious, interesting, new, and different. Uh, the spell point system isn't as good as the one that can be found for free in the SRD, and the freeform system is riddled with inconsistencies as well. Overall, I'd say that none of the mechanics in the book really stand out, and there's virtually nothing that's worth using as is without having to adjust and improve it. The book is, for the most part, well written, and while you will find some places where the rules of the book use the wrong terminology or are otherwise incorrect, and as I said before, the flavorful introductions to the chapters are just painful. Uh, the background sections do actually do a fair job of accomplishing their purpose of getting you excited about their type of magic. It's just unfortunate that there's really not that much, mechanically speaking, to back that excitement up and justify it. Still, the hype itself may be worth the book, and those of you willing to work with what you find 
may be able to turn chronomancy, madness magic, or one of the many other new classes into something really cool and fun that will be mysterious and different and downright magical in your game. Just don't think that you'll actually find anything like that already in here, because that's just asking for disappointment. You can get a copy of Magic on www.drivethroughrpg.com for $4.95, marked down from an original price of $26.95. Uh, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that the markdown is more to do with the book being old and made for the outdated 3.0 rules than because no one is willing to buy it at the original price. But to be perfectly honest, I couldn't recommend it at over $20. Um, at less than 5 however, it gets a lot harder to say for sure. Like I said, this isn't a shiny polished gem that you'll be able to just use immediately. But if you polish it up and are willing to do a lot of legwork, you can mine this book for a whole lot of ideas, both flavorful ideas and mechanical ones, although in the case of the mechanical ones you'll need to do a lot of expanding in order for them to be any good. So if you want a fixer-upper and general resource to mine designs from, $4.95 is a pretty good price. If you want a resource ready-made for players and DMs though, well, let's just say I hope your standards aren't too high. And thank you for that enlightening review. And now we're going to continue an ongoing segment called Bestiary Breakdown. In it, we're breaking down the Bestiary 3 and looking at some monsters contained therein. Last time we looked at the Ahuizotl, the Achlut, and the Alruin. The latter of two which, if you'll remember, were depressingly terrible. Technically, the next monster to get the breakdown treatment should be the Animal Lord template. But this one was mostly covered during the Bestiary 3 review a few weeks back. So we're going to go ahead and skip it. In fact, we're going to skip all the way to the Archon, comma, Harbinger, because it's the next monster we're going to have anything interesting to say about. The Harbinger Archon is a CR2 lawful good outsider, and not surprisingly, an Archon. What is surprising about it is that it resembles a floating orrery, the scale model of the solar system, or possibly in this case, the great planes of existence. Also, despite being Archons, they curiously lack the aura of menace and teleport abilities that are generally granted to all Archons, and unless I gravely misremember, that are guaranteed by Archon traits, so that's unusual. Uh, mechanically, they attack with blade attacks that function more or less identically to daggers and can dissemble into a cloud of component parts, which is uh, somehow similar to the gaseous form spell, except in several key ways, like not changing its fly speed, not affecting their DR, and not letting them squeeze through something smaller than an inch. So, you know, it's not really that much like gaseous form, but I, gu I guess the visual effect must be similar. Uh, according to their fluff, they act primarily as servants and advisors, and in fact they can be taken as a familiar by those with access to the improved familiar feat. Uh, that's about all there is to recommend the monster, though, uh, so unless something in your campaign has gone so horribly wrong that you can come up with a good use for a CR2 Archon, in your game you probably aren't going to need them for, uh, for combatants, except for maybe as, uh, as part of an add-on to a wizard or something like that. Now, in theory, you could repurpose the Archon stat blocks to be something other than a uh, other than an Archon. There's nothing particularly the uh, heavenly or angelic about an orrery, and the majority of these abilities, uh, at least the ones that aren't you know spell-like, aren't terribly good or lawfully aligned. Uh, so you could, in theory, make uh, make them into good low-level guardians for a mage tower. You know, design them anything where like construct whirling blade devices would be cool. Uh, so mechanically they're about right for their CR, uh, their AC is high and they have a hard to overcome DR5 over evil, but they have somewhat low hit points and they do li very little damage, so they, they more or less balance out for CR2. The next monster on the list is the Legion Archon, a CR7 outsider that fits the description of Angelic Soldier. 
The only special mechanics that the Legion Archon gets are ones that allow it to not have to worry about its armor check penalties or else uh, to create a sword from thin air. Not exactly inspiring or exciting design. Still, it's, uh, it's nice that they have a mechanical ability that explains away those, those very minor details. Uh, still, Heavenly Hosts are a popular trope, and a CR7 Angelic Soldier is something that I can see a DM really having a need for. Uh, you might very well want an Angelic Soldier at a time where you're actually playing the game. Uh, so that's uh, that's exciting. Mechanically, they're maybe a little too strong for their CR, with attack and damage being slightly above the recommended amount. High AC and uh, lower than recommended HP isn't necessarily going to be enough to make up for that. It does help a little bit. Uh, they have DR and spell resistance, though. Uh, some spell-like abilities. So the good, good defensive abilities and, uh, and some nice kickers. So you might want to play with it. Uh, do some play testing, or maybe just run it CRA just to kind of make sure that everything is going to work out okay. Um, alternatively, you could uh, you could find some good way to uh, to cripple those advantages. You know, put it in a situation where uh, the other side's going to have the advantage, or you know, make it an ally or something. You know, where you don't really need to worry about how strong it is. Um, so the fluff for the Legion Archon is unfortunately a little bit less than robust. Uh, there's there's not a lot there to be said. But, I mean, really, it's an angelic soldier. You can probably fill in the blanks. Uh, that's a, you know, a popular enough trope that you, you should know what's, what's up with that. Uh, so next up is the Asimoid, a CR5 fungus that looks like nothing so much as a giant, porous rolling sphere. Uh, it apparently reproduces by filling its victims with spores, which grow at a rapid rate to feed off the body and become new Asimoids. Their main attack form is rolling over people, and their stat block supports this with a trample attack. They can also nauseate uh, their targets and infect them with a strength sapping poison. The fluff for Asimoids is kind of cool, but there really isn't that much more to it than what I've said above. Mechanically, its AC and hit points are a bit low, but it has decent damage reduction, and neither its attacks nor damage is terribly high, uh, though not necessarily inappropriate for their CR. Uh, its saving throw DCs are a smudge high, but again with the, uh, with the other sort of mediocre uh, offensive abilities. There's, there's nothing really to worry about here. Uh, it's kind of close enough. Uh, and, I mean, really, it's it's kind of a cool thing. It's a giant sponge that, that makes more of itself and it rolls. I mean, come on. I know you want one of these, so, uh, so personally, I think the Asimoid is cool. Uh, and now, I'd like to take a moment to return to another segment that we, uh, that, that we have an ongoing here, though you may not remember as we haven't seen it in a while. It's called Optimal Options. This week, uh, since we've already spent so much time looking at magic in our review, I'm going to discuss some uh, options for less magically inclined characters. Uh, specifically, we're going to look at some of the fighter archetypes from Ultimate Combat to see if any are worth your time and precious class features. The first archetype is the Armor Master, which is devoted to defense, protection, and overall durability. Not really shocking there. Uh, the first ability the archetype provides allows you to slowly apply more and more of your shield bonus to your touch AC. While this isn't anything to write home about per se, uh, it's only replacing bravery, which, you know, sucks. So uh, this could be a potentially good trade-off, especially if you expect to be targeted by a lot of touch attacks, which you might very well if your DM is mean and wants to ruin your fighter. Uh, so applying your shield bonus could actually be a useful ability, unlike bravery. So that checks out. Uh, the next ability allows you to gain some DR, 
one, two, or three, depending on whether your armor is light, medium, or heavy, respectively. Uh, now, DR is always good, but in the small numbers, it's not always going to be that noticeable. Of course, at 19th level, the amounts increase drastically, 4, 8, and 12. But this comes so late in the game that it's almost not worth mentioning. In 19th level, DR 12, I mean, it's cool, but I mean, you're going to have like four more encounters before the campaign's over, if you made it to level 19 at all. Uh, further, this comes at the cost of weapon training, 1 and 3, and armor mastery. So it effectively translates to minus 2 attack and damage, the hefty price to pay for DR 3 over dash. I wouldn't do this. Uh, except for that, you know, you got to take the whole package. So definitely shows the uh, the uh, the function the focus on defense is in uh, is in full swing there. Next, you get to trade in weapon training two and four. Great uh, for fortification on any armor you wear, which upgrades eventually to moderate fortification. Uh, so if you think that that's a good deal, uh, you you should really re-examine your perspective because that that's kind of awful. Uh, unless your DMs love dual-wielding Kukri characters who are, uh, who you know, just just going to destroy you with Vorpal Kukris all the time, and you really need that, that critical hit resistance, and, and you can't possibly afford the very reasonably priced fortification on your armor, um, then, uh, or, or, you know, every other character's a rogue, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, necessarily be, uh, be a fan of trading off a half- of uh, a chance to have negating attack for another minus uh, two to attack and damage. Uh, so the last ability makes you completely immune to critical hits and sneak attacks at the cost of weapon mastery, uh, which is actually a pretty good deal as weapon mastery does a lot less in practice than on paper, and complete immunity is much better than medium fortification. On the other hand, this doesn't come up until 20th level, so you're not likely to notice that much of a difference. Uh, in short, I'd stay away from the armor master if I were you, especially if you like all the cool new things that fighters have gotten since uh, since the Pathfinder conversion, or you want to do a lot of, you know, fighting with your fighter. Uh, so the next archetype we'll be looking at is the Dragoon, which is themed as a mounted combatant. So that's more or less what Dragoons did historically, so we're good to go there. Uh, they start off uh, strong, replacing the normal fighter bonus feat with both mounted combat and skill focus ride. Uh, the Dragoon's uh, weapon training is locked into the spear weapon group, but on the other hand is more valuable than a normal fighter's gaining twice the damage bonus for a total of plus 4 plus 8 instead of, uh, or sorry, twice the normal damage bonus. Attack bonus remains the same. Plus 4 plus 8 instead of plus 4 plus 4. And since you're a mounted combatant, you're fighting with a lance, so it's basically the same but better. Uh, at 7th level, the Dragoon gains the ability to use a reach weapon to attack adjacent targets as well. Still important because you're fighting with a lance. Also good. Flavorfully, this is uh, this is by using the butt end of the weapon, and so when using the ability, the weapon is treated as a club. Okay, so maybe it's not quite as good, but uh, it does still retain any enchantments it possesses, uh, and so makes your reach weapons uh, much more versatile. More, you know, so your lance will work when they close to you, and uh, that that's good because. It doesn't, you know, look very cool to have your mount have to backpedal five feet. Uh, anyway, uh, you do. This does come at the cost of armor training too, but unless your fighter has a very high dexterity, that's not going to be that big of a loss. Uh, admittedly, you might you might want the less armor check penalty because you're going to be riding a lot, but I'd say it's a worthwhile trade off most of the time. The archetype also grants the banner class feature from the Cavalier, granting your allies a bonus on saving throw against fear effects. 
and attack rolls while charging. Uh, this isn't worth a whole lot, really, but at the same time it's replacing weapon training 2 and 3 uh, and 4. Uh, which, since, like I mentioned earlier, you're already getting a plus 8, or plus 4, plus 8 bonus with spears and lances. So, it's really, it's kind of like getting banner for free. So, nothing wrong with that. Uh, at 11th level, the Dragoon gets an ability which makes him better at charging mounted opponents. And it's possible that if you're playing a Dragoon, your campaign may be more knight-themed, and so there's going to be more mounted opponents than normal. But, if your campaigns run anything like mine... Uh, in, in more likelihood, the, this isn't going to be all that great to you. Um, on the other hand, it's replacing Armor Mastery 2, so, you know, you may still be coming out on top. Uh, unless, again, you're really looking for a, uh, for a ride score that's going to be much higher than you're ever going to need for anything. Ever. Uh, so the last ability the Dragoon gets is puzzling, uh, and probably inspired by Final Fantasy. Starts out okay, allowing your dragoon to ignore arm check penalty to AC when having to use his mount, or when having his mount use acrobatics. Further, the dragoon can apparently choose to jump from his mount while charging, and if he jumps at least 10 feet, he gains some bonuses on the attack roll and is treated as being, is still being mounted for the purposes of damage dealt by a lance. Of course, why you would feel a need to do this is beyond me, but again, all you're losing is armor training, so you know, there's that to consider. So, the bottom line, if you want a mounted combatant who uses a lance or spear, you could do a lot worse than the Dragoon archetype. Finally, I want to tell you about the rather uncreatively named Tower Shield Specialist. Another defensively ar oriented archetype, and this is one that I can really get behind. In lieu of bravery, they get a similar bonus on reflex saves as long as they're wielding a Tower Shield, which they probably will be as Tower Shield Specialists. It's a pretty fair trade, all things considered. Uh, they also get a free bonus to their armor training, reducing the armor check penalty of the tower shield by an additional 3, which is useful because it has the really high armor check penalty, uh, and increasing his maximum dex bonus uh, by, by 2 for some reason, because, you know, he, he really needs to not be max dex limited. Anyway, yeah, I'm not complaining, it's free AC. I mean, it's probably not free AC, but it could be if they had a lot of dexterity. Um... Things just get better and better, as Weapon Training 1 is replaced by an ability that negates the Tower Shield's uh, penalty to attack, effectively trading plus 1 attack and plus 1 damage for plus 2 attack. A bargain any way you look at it. And, uh, and definitely the thing you're going to be most after if you ever want to fight with a Tower Shield. Uh, then there's a bit of a downturn, as you replace Weapon Training 2 with the ability to add your shield bonus to Touch AC. Now this is certainly better than the similar ability from the archetype we talked about before, but at the cost of the attack and damage bonus, it may not be worth it. Um, Weapon Training 3 is replaced by a theoretically useful, but likely to be ignored ability to switch the way your tower shield is facing as an immediate action. Uh, but this obviously requires using the tower shield for cover, something that most people quickly forget they can even do. Uh, and you also can't use this ability to interrupt an attack, limiting its usefulness. On the other hand, since it's an immediate, you can do it on an opponent's turn, so it sounds like you could use it, say, after your opponent moves up to you, but before he attacks. Uh, finally, in exchange for Weapon Training 4 and Weapon Mastery, you gain Improved Invasion. Overall, the complete loss of Weapon Training is upsetting, but the defensive abilities are powerful, and you do still get an effective plus 2 to your attack, uh, to your attack rolls. Uh, so assuming you're planning on using a Tower Shield anyway, that is, if you do feel like being a short sword and board type with the biggest board available, 
and you don't plan on bashing with your board, you could really do a whole lot worse than a tower shield specialist. All right, now we're going to go ahead and talk about a product that was just released last Monday on the 16th. Uh, it's our latest PDF that we produced. It's called A Necromancer's Grimoire, The Wonders of Alchemy. And as you may imagine, it focuses primarily on alchemy and alchemical substances. Um, so we just wanted to tell you a little bit about that so that you could, you know, get excited and go buy it. Uh, so it contains a number of different things. The, the overall purpose of the book was we wanted to make sure that alchemy um, was was going to be more interesting we've we've kind of we talk a little bit about it in the the introduction but alchemy alchemy is cool um there's a whole lot of rich lore and tradition in in folklore and in popular media and you know without referencing certain really really popular animes that go off in other directions uh you know al alchemy is a big thing and there's a lot of stuff in 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 various fantasy media about it and in D and D, you can use it to make things that cost like up to thirty gold and are useless after level four. And we thought that wasn't that great, so we wanted to to make alchemy a little more interesting. We, um, at least I personally, don't particularly love the alchemist class and don't feel that it's terribly alchemical, um, despite how they may name it. Uh, and so we wanted to, you know, for example, give give you something you can do with craft alchemy and and make make your character you know if you want to run one of those characters who runs around in the woods and gets you know various ingredients or who spends all of his time in a in a smoke-filled lab uh, messing around with beakers and mortars and pestles we wanted to give you a little bit of support for that and that's what this book is really for so we start off with infusions and these are uh these are something that it's a new kind of alchemical item, and Josh was, was chiefly involved in these, so I'm going to let him talk about those a bit first. Yeah, so the infusion is a, it's a whole new class of item, basically. That, uh, that it, What it is, is it's an alchemical substance that, that, you, can, that you infuse yourself with. Uh, typically, this is going to augment some, uh, some major portion of, of your your character's anatomy and uh, as such there are a lot of uh, a lot of flavorful elements to uh, to that process that uh, that occur within infusions and we'll be talking a little bit about that in a moment uh, and uh, basically an infusion is a permanent uh, slotless well it's a new slot the infusion slot uh, magic item that you can have one of typically you're only ever going to have one but you can change the magic. just a not, not a very safe process uh, some, something else we'll be getting to a little bit later but uh, but I, I really wanted uh, to to include some like kind of higher level alchemy art kind of thing that that, that gives you the ability to significantly alter a personage with alchemy which uh, which is something I think that you uh, that you see quite often in uh, in popular media, and uh, and there may or may not be reference to it in pseudoscientific alchemical books. It's uh, <laughs> it's a very diverse subject, but uh, but I, I definitely wanted to capture capture the image that that you can add something to yourself and, and significantly make uh, make make real physical changes on a uh, it, with alchemy and uh, and I think that uh, that there's a lot of a lot of um, pre precedent for that kind of thing and uh, that it was completely un unrepresented I thought was a shame uh. and 
another cool thing about the uh, about the infusions is that you know they do give you they really give you a chance to sort of play mad scientist alchemy as well. Uh, obviously, you're you're injecting this into your your subject or into yourself. Uh, and then it, it causes, you know, gross physical changes in them in, in some cases. Uh, some more subtle than others, but, you know, you, definitely the sort of thing that you could you would expect from a sort of mad science thing. Um, so one of the things that we did to really encourage that and make it more... <coughs> make it more... Um, uh, something that you would want to do is uh, we've actually adjusted slightly uh, the the way that it works with the infusions is they have they have a cost uh which is the the cost of materials you need to make them and then they have a market price um which is like other magic items except that unlike with with other magic items or like with alchemy uh the cost usually that the material cost usually re gets a substantial discount uh but the reason for that is because it's a little more complicated to apply an infusion than to just stick a needle in somebody and and say presto we're done. Um, there's a there's an extensive process. There's a few checks you have to make, and potentially in theory, if things go really bad, uh, it, the application process could even prove lethal to the uh, to the subject. It doesn't happen very often, um, and with access to magical healing, it, it shouldn't really ever happen. But in theory, you know, if if you if you happen to uh, to go get a back alley infusion from someone who doesn't have a proper alchemist's license or whatever, you 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 could wind up dying for it. Um, and so as a result, you know, if you're willing to jump through all those hoops and actually play the, the alchemy sort of, I guess, sub-game, you know, if, if you want to be the guy doing all of that, you can, you know, get away with a pretty substantial discount, whereas, you know, if you just want to go out and buy it as a magic item, uh, it, it costs, you know, about what it should uh, for that. Yeah, uh, that that definitely was a, uh, was a piece of flavor we were really looking to capture, uh, actually throughout the book, was a... Uh, was that alchemy stuff should uh, should be cheaper for alchemists, uh, and uh, the infusion I think is is perhaps where this is most pronounced. Uh, not only you know all those uh, those hoops you have to go through do give a a good sort of mechanical justification for uh, for for being cheaper, but uh, you know we really want to encourage with this book being an alchemist or visiting the alchemist and just just pump up the alchemist in general, and and I just don't think that. You know, here's a new uh, new magic item slot. It's called the infusion slot. Here's the price for putting stuff in that slot. Really does that as uh, as well as the uh, the system we ultimately did end up coming uh, up with, which which features complex and dynamic rules, both for uh, for for the application of the uh, the the infusion as well as for uh, you know surviving that infusion. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's, uh, that's kind of a special thing, and it, it really get, adds to uh, the, the fun of getting that magical item uh, a lot more so than, you know, going down to Pete's discount magic item store and just, you know, buying a headband or something that, that might do something similar to what an infusion would do, though there aren't too many headbands that are going to be replicating a lot of these effects are, uh, are more interesting than that, and... Uh, Admittedly, there are some more mundane ones. Uh, for example, there, there there is one alchemist courage that that makes you immune to fear effects. Uh, spoiler, uh, it does uh, it does come with kind of a cool drawback uh, because because uh, an infusion makes a significant change to uh, the way a person functions and in a mad science kind of way, 
that never comes without a price. Uh, so in addition to, uh, to paying the costs associated with that, uh, you might have to, uh, to, you're going to have to suffer a drawback, which is, uh, which is always explained in the brief little flavorful description patch of the item. Uh, for example, this one, uh, the Alchemist's Courage, uh, causes a penalty to resist charm and compulsion effects because you are, uh, you're giddy and mildly suggestible as a result of, uh, of having blood that, that feeds you, you know, endorphins that make you courageous. So, um, so, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of significant differences between infusions and the, the typical magic item. Uh, and it, it kind of hits on all levels in a way that I think is going to be uh, uh, more satisfying and, and I think ultimately more fun for, uh, for the, everyone involved in the situation. And even if you are going to go pay full market price, you can definitely still inject some of that, uh, that alchemical flavor, hint, GMs. Uh, so now we're going to actually we're going to move on and we're going to talk about the next uh, kind of excellent idea that the book comes up with serums, which uh, which were sort of Alex's brainchild. So I'm going to hand those over to him. Thank you. So uh, serums are essentially they, they all. They use something called a serum injector, which is a kind of a belt which has some uh, some tubes with which ended some needles and you. You plug them into yourself, and then it will magically, um, when you when you give the command word, it'll magically start automatically injecting you with serums. Or actually, you can also set it up to, to fill it with potions uh, if you have those, uh, which will automatically inject them into your bloodstream, and you you get automatically one dose, uh, so one potion or one dose of a serum every round until it it runs out, and it, it sort of goes automatically in order. Um, <clears throat> the difference between a serum and a potion. There's a couple. Um, first of all, serums can't just be drunk. They have to be with the serum injector. More importantly, serums stack, sort of. Um, if, you, if you take multiple doses of a serum, then it will, uh, it will give you a stronger result, and it will eventually, if you take too many doses, you start to get a drawback, and you can, theoretically, you can potentially sort of OD on some of them. Um, but so, you know, for example... Um, if you take the, uh, the body serum here, uh, at one dose, it just gives you a plus two con, uh, and then at, at two doses, it gives you plus four con, and then once you hit three doses, it's giving you plus six con, but now you start to suffer a drawback, and you take a minus two penalty to strength and dexterity, uh, and then the same, at four doses, there's no increase. Five to six, you've got plus eight, same drawback. Seven to nine doses, uh, you now have plus ten. Uh, enhancement to your constitution. You take a minus four to strength and dexterity, and then at the full ten doses, the the belt can only hold ten doses. You've got plus twelve con, and you've got still minus four. And there's there's some others that do some more exciting things than just upping an ability score. Um, you know, there's there's one in there, uh, for example, like the invulnerability serum, unstable. Uh, you know, gives you dr, sr, and natural armor, and then it uh, for its drawback, you actually need to make uh, make fortitude saves, or you become petrified because it's it's unstable, and and that's the unstable effect is it, it causes you to turn to stone. Um, if this sounds to you a lot like the uh, the the Batman villain Bane with his uh, his serum that his what was it Venom is what it's called yeah uh, that's that's because that's exactly what this was based off of. Um, I thought that was cool. I was watching. Uh, 
watching Batman while I was doing some work, and uh, and I thought that was really awesome, and I wanted to do something with it. And I think that we came out with some cool stuff for that. Um, and, and I think that you know, uh, at the very least, uh, Serum will make for for a couple of fun encounters. If you wanted to, you know, as a GM, if you wanted to throw a uh, a, a Serum junkie or two at your PCs, I think that that will definitely leave an impression on them. Uh, and then, you know, PCs who want to use them, I think, will be able to get a lot of fun and, and use out of them as well. There are rules, for those of you who are wondering, for uh, for cutting or, uh, or otherwise, you know, uh, disabling the serum injector. Just, you know, throwing that out there. Uh, moving on from the serums, though, because we're starting to run out of time. Uh, next, we have some poisons. Um, these were mostly done by Josh. I'll let him talk about that in, in just a sec, but I just wanted to mention that, you know, we did, as we were doing the potions, we kind of, or we went out of the way to make sure that we were getting some more interesting potions, you know, something that was more than just uh, a different mix of how much con damage and what the DC was and, you know, how many saves you had to do, something that, that had some more unique and, and fun effects, and so there are some some kind of oddball poisons in there, but they're all, I think at least, and I'm sure Josh would agree, um, I, I think that they're all, you know, odd in a, in a good way. Yeah, so, I mean, what alchemy book would have been complete without poisons? Well, a lot of people would probably argue a lot of them would have been, but we're not those people. We think that if you're, uh, that if you're into stuff that comes in little vials, you're going to want some poisons. It's just the way you are. Uh, or so we think. Uh, so so it's like Alex said. A lot of these poisons, we uh, we really just kind of wanted to get away from. You know, looking at the the table on say the SRD or in the back of numerous source books. If you if you prefer to go through uh, go through one by one, you'll find that the vast majority of them are okay. So you get so much ability score damage at this frequency with this DC or that DC and this cure number and you know frankly that's a little bit boring i mean i think there's a lot more you can do with poisons than okay so here's some ability scores and, and where you want to go around with that we we do have at least one like that so if you're the poison traditionalist we still have you covered don't worry you weren't forgot about it. i found a uh i found a set of numbers that that is that is different from what they have so far so that's in there for you uh, but but the vast majority of these poisons are uh, are are designed to do are designed to do effects that are that that are more interesting. Now some of these are uh, are, are like Alex said a little bit oddball. Uh, for example, we have a uh, we have one the essence of nightmares poison is a is a poison that 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 makes it harder to sleep, but it's got a very uh, very unusual frequency. It's a very slow acting kind of poison, and it. Uh, you know, obviously, the the idea is the idea here is that that you can create a poison which, which is going to you know affect the uh, the, the part of them that, that lets them you be able to uh, to sleep and dream and rest naturally and uh, and uh, you know obviously I mean you can you can see how something could uh, could if you want to put on your science hat you know attack the uh, the the chemicals in the brain or whatever and neuro inhibit that so that you couldn't really do that uh, and then a, a lot of the uh, poisons are also kind of uh, kind of stuff that. You would have thought that they would have had, like the, uh, for example, the ivory slug poison, uh, slows the victim, uh, and since so many, uh, so many natural poisons do things like slowing or paralysis, uh, that kind of thing, I definitely wanted to see some of, and uh, and then we definitely have some, uh, some that are more alchemically bent, like the anti-panacea, the panacea, of course, being a a, a big facet of alchemical lore. Uh, you know the the all cure. This is kind of the uh, kind of the opposite deal. So, 
uh, we definitely wanted to uh, to include a lot of really exciting uh, poisons, and I definitely think we managed to uh, to come up with that in a um, in a way that I think a lot of you are going to uh, gonna find you know fun and exciting. And uh, the assassins among you will uh, will not find that this book was uh was it's not just for alchemists, though. I mean it 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 is for alchemists, but here's something that everybody I think can find a lot of use for where they really don't need to go too far out of their way to uh, to incorporate something new into their game. Uh, speaking of which, we're going to go ahead and move on now to uh, to what is the largest single section of the book, and uh, and perhaps the uh, the the one you've been most looking forward to the uh, the wondrous items section, where we give you new alchemically themed wondrous items. Yes. Now the cool thing that you really have to bear in mind with this is that while I mean, for, for one thing, you may be sitting there going, wait, wondrous items, what do those have to do with alchemy? And you're, for the most part, right. Um, you know, there are, if you go through the core rulebook, there's a handful of oils and elixirs and things, but there's not that many. Uh, and even even those that are, they have nothing to do with, for example, the craft alchemy skill. Well, that is something that is less the case in this book. And one of, one of the single most coolest things about this book, uh, I think, is that... Um, all of the wondrous items here, they're all obviously alchemically themed, but we actually back that up by providing rules that allow you, in addition to crafting any of these magic items, uh, through the standard means of, you know, craft wondrous item, get the spell, go through all of the, the stuff, you, you know, in the core rulebook. Um, in addition to that, there is another way to craft all of these by using the craft alchemy skill. Uh, and that whole thing is laid out. You've got all the information for crafting all of these. There's also some information in there for how you could apply this method uh, backwards compatibly to the core rulebook. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, DMs are completely in the right to be upset at the idea of you alchemically crafting a helm of uh, brilliant gemstones or whatever. But, um, you know, they... Uh, there are plenty of items in there, you know, the oils and potions that I mentioned and you know, maybe some of the lenses could be alchemically crafted, that sort of thing, uh, where you might want to be able to use craft alchemy for that. And then even more importantly, there are some rules set aside, an optional uh, optional rule that you can use where you can use craft alchemy to make potions, which really should have been the case in the first place. Um, I, I, th I think that uh, considering all of the, the lore about what alchemy is supposed to do and all of that, I, I was really disappointed that you couldn't use craft alchemy to craft potions before. Now... If your you know, GM doesn't think that it's a terrible idea, you can. Uh, and more importantly, you can craft all of these cool elixirs and, uh, and oils and all sorts of things that we have in this book. There's 50, all told, um, and there's certainly going to be far too many for us to, uh, to go over all of them with you. But there's all sorts of cool ones in here, um, and I'm going to go ahead and hand you over to Josh, who made a number of these. Yeah, so basically, if you were looking for uh, for cool alchemical items, and you were like, okay, well, first thing I'm going to look at is potions. Okay, it's just some spell effects. That's all right, I guess. And then you were like, oh, hey, cool, there's elixirs and things in the in the back of the book and the magic items. Oh, there's like three of these. Uh, this is the section for you. Uh, we got all of your uh, we got all of your wildest alchemical dreams. Uh, covered here. We got offensive items. We got defensive items. We've got elixirs that can alter you in ways that you know the spells in the uh, 
in the in the book can really dream of because they're all reasonably well balanced items so nothing so uh so far out of uh, out of context that you couldn't conceivably create some kind of you know, new spell effect that could do something similar but the the fact is that we have items here that that are designed to do things that you can't just do with potions or uh, or the or the existing mix and uh, and while there there are uh, a lot of specific examples i want you to buy the product um but we're definitely we're we're talking about a lot of just kind of the the neat sort of stuff that you've always wanted to be able to do with alchemy, including such uh, such fantastic items as healer's ointment, phoenix fumes, ungent of indestructibility, omnium. You know that sounds good. Elixir of dragon health, and they're not all potions and liquids. For example, can I interest you in some lenses of light gathering, or maybe a disillusionment rod? That there are literally, well, not endless, but there are 50 options of fantastic alchemical things here, and uh, and I would personally guarantee everyone to satisfy. So, what would you pay for such a collection of strange alchemical items and rules? Do I hear 50,000 gold pieces? No? <laughs> That's probably fair. Um, though, in fairness, there are some, some items in the book. That, anyway, all right, fair enough. So... Realistically, you don't need to play guessing games. I will tell you how much it costs. It is $2.49 at your local drive-thru RPG. $2.49? We're practically giving this away! Yes. Uh, so, as uh, as my companion there has pointed out, uh, at 40 pages, that's less than 10 cents a page, and additionally, uh, notably less than your morning coffee, so something you might want to consider. In any case, we're well out of time for today, so that's going to be all that we have for today. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for Divination Week, and be sure to check in in the meantime on our website for all sorts of fun and cool divination-themed articles. Uh, have a great day.